The name of our podcast, Techsequences, is really a mashup of two words, technology and consequences. We are fascinated by the consequences, intended or unintended, of the internet and related technologies for the way we live, play, and work. We are your hosts, Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. We started our careers at the dawn of the internet and have been friends, colleagues, and comrades in arms for the better part of 20 years. In this podcast, we examine the impact internet-related technologies have made or may make in our lives. I'm Alexa Rod. And I'm Leslie Daigle. Welcome to Techsequences. The U.S. national security and military complex has fostered scientific and technological innovations to gain and maintain our security and strategic advantage over our adversaries. The investments the U.S. government has made have paid dividends in both military and commercial sectors. Many of the technologies we use today can trace their roots to government-funded defense initiatives. In fact, many tech innovations and even industries such as aviation, nuclear, internet, and robotics were initially initiatives funded by the U.S. government for military and defense purposes. The household vacuum Roomba and sophisticated Mars rover share common ancestry. Shaky the robot, a DARPA-funded invention developed between 1966 to 1972 and considered as a pivotal milestone in the development of robotics and artificial intelligence. As mentioned before, the innovations fostered by U.S. government eventually found their way into commercial markets with uses and applications sometimes vastly different than what they were originally designed for. Take microchips, for example. The U.S. government first enabled the mass production of microchips in the aftermath of World War II as it sought tiny devices that could quickly do the complicated mathematical equations necessary for targeting missiles with high precision. Or the ubiquitous GPS systems, which were first developed in 1970s when the Defense Department began working on creating a comprehensive satellite navigation system for national defense and scientific purposes. It took until 1993 when a fully functional 24 satellite system was ready to grow into the commercial GPS service we all use today. During the Clinton era, the White House published a paper called Maintaining Military Advantage Through Science and Technology Investment. In it, the administration argued vociferously that, quote, maintaining technological superiority underpins our national military strategy, unquote. So if our national strategy and military might is highly dependent on scientific and technical innovations, and if those innovations continue to pay dividends in non-governmental sectors as well, then just how well are we doing? Do we have the right models and incentives to maintain our advantage? And if not, what do we need to fix? Our guest today is Dr. Tina Srivastava. Tina is an author, rocket scientist, entrepreneur, and technology expert. She earned her bachelor's of science, master's of science, and PhD in aerospace engineering, all from MIT. Her recent book, Innovating in a Secret World, The Future of National Security and Global Leadership, has received many accolades, was featured by organizations including MIT, National Defense Magazine, NDIA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the Army Innovation Command, the London Metropolitan Police Service, joint industry and government events, London Enterprise Tech Meetup, the 2021 Harvard Social Enterprise Conference. 
She served on the board of directors of INCOS, International Council on Systems Engineering, and is the recipient of the inaugural David Wright Leadership Award for Technical and Interpersonal Competencies in the Practice of System Engineering as a means for solving the great challenges of our planet. Tina is also an FAA certified pilot and instructor of MIT's Pilot Ground School course. She teaches at MIT in the areas of technology, road mapping, aerodynamics, meteorology, and flight planning. Welcome, Tina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here with two incredible women and looking forward to the conversation on this important topic. Great. So let's first start with perhaps an obvious question. Why is the U.S. military strategy and national security so dependent on scientific and technical superiority? Great question, Leslie. As we've seen uh, in today's world, the ability for a country to have influence over their allies as well as their adversaries has increasingly come down to technology. What we found is that technology superiority and national security go hand in hand. It comes down to both hard power and soft power. The obvious side is the hard power, right? The technology on the battlefield, who can be most effective with their military assets in winning a war. But there's also increasingly the cyber field, less obvious forms of power, soft power, national competitiveness, our ability to influence others. This is also increasingly being driven by technological superiority, this knowledge-based power, what we're capable of doing, what intelligence we have, what do we know about our adversaries and what can we keep them from knowing about us. A lot of that is now becoming baked into um, the power of our economy and how the U.S. plays on a national scale. And so we found that technology is intertwined with the economy and with hard power and soft power, and that's why it's so related to our national security. So the U.S. government has a legacy of funding and are facilitating highly in innovative technologies like the Internet and, uh, you know, Doppler MRI, electric cars, and uh, even most recently, vaccines. But is that really enough? Um, in other words, for the current security environment and the threats facing the U.S., are we innovating at the speed and volume we should maintain in order to have an advantage over our adversaries? I think that that question is coming to the forefront even today. In the news today, we're obviously focused on Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and the focus on semiconductors. This is another example where semiconductors were first invented here in our Silicon Valley. And this is the place where, you know, the U.S. thrived and took the lead role in that innovation. But now we see a situation where that is coming into question in terms of the pace of innovation, who is keeping up with it. And in fact, the, the reality is that the vast overwhelming majority of semiconductor manufacturing is done outside of the US. And so that innovative um, edge that we've had, you know, some might argue is, is being lost in that area. And we see that playing out in the politics today. We're seeing that 
play into national security and our relationship with other countries today. So um, it's a great example of that. So I think there are certainly examples where we might question whether we are maintaining that superiority or whether we need to do more in order to continue to maintain it. Now in the CHIPS example, um, the US actually gave up its advantage in uh, CHIPS manufacturing and now is trying to regain it back because of the uh, security concerns. Um, how, how much did that affect us? In other words, the fact that we gave that up because of cost effectiveness and efficiency, which are some of the things you talk about in your book. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, it's only one example of that. I think another one in my book where the U.S. gave up its advantage was in the commercial satellite world, where we saw that the U.S. had the overwhelming majority share. And in, in that case, the reason why we gave it up would be actually because we were trying to protect it. Um, but in a protectionist move uh, with the ITAR and export regulations we put around it, we actually incentivized other countries to invest in their own satellite development and in fact have now dropped and are no longer the uh, majority shareholder in the market in that industry. And so in fact, in trying to uh, hold it too close, we actually resulted in encouraging other countries to develop a capability that they didn't have before. So I think there are a few examples where um, the U.S. has started with that edge and, and lost it. And so we need to think about, you know, maybe maybe that is okay, maybe it's not, maybe we need to invest more, but it all comes down to um, taking a longer view. So short-term actions um, may have unintended consequences, which I think is the really um, the heart of this podcast and why it's such a pleasure to, to be here because this podcast sheds light on these types of issues and unintended consequences, which I think we're seeing play out in the marketplace today. You, um, you devote some time in the book to talking about the open innovation strategy. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what that is and how different it is from the traditional corporate R&D advantages, disadvantages? Yes, absolutely. What it comes down to is just like we were focused on at the beginning with technological superiority and national security, there are, in fact, innovation strategies that can help us better yield innovation from the R&D investment that we make. And being thoughtful about those innovation strategies is really important so that we're not just dependent on pouring in more money into R&D, but finding strategies to effectively yield the innovation that we need. Open innovation is an example of one of those strategies, a broad category of strategies, really, that can allow us to yield the innovation we need from our R&D investment. And in particular, um, it's just about harnessing ideas from outside the one specific group that's trying to innovate. A lot of times when you think about innovation, you think about these core concepts, right? collaboration, working with others, bringing in a diverse set of ideas. And that's really what open innovation is about. It's about changing your thought process to think outside the box. How can I harness ideas from outside my specific group and, and put them to bear? And this is kind of building in on, Alexa, your point about cost effectiveness and 
efficiency, that that's what it's all about. And so if we can implement open innovation strategies, we can yield these results. Now there's a whole broad cat, you know, uh, taxonomy of open innovation strategies that I describe in the book, everything from having, you know, a challenge like a $10 million challenge um, to a grand challenge to incentivize people from all over the world to come and put money forward, invest their own resources to solve a problem, to gain the reputation as well as the prize money, as well as uh, smaller collaborative challenges. So there's a whole range of how you can devise these open innovation uh, strategies in an organization. Uh, it seems like in the past, you know, it, it, some of the invasions we talked about, like the chips, the MRI, the Doppler, a lot of these were done by the U.S. government in secret because they had such huge implications for national security at the time. But open innovation is actually the opposite of that. So there's this tension between having an open innovation model and yet maintaining secrecy. How do you reconcile that? And, and do we need to move away from the way we used to do innovation for in, in government, certainly for national security? Yeah, great question, Alexa. And I think that this is really the heart of the tension that how can you have open innovation in these closed environments? You know, that's really my background where I came from working in these closed environments. Uh, oftentimes we call it a SCIF, a secured compartmented information facility, basically a metal box without any windows uh, where you have to leave your cell phone outside, leave all network connectivity outside and go in this closed room to innovate. And it's really kind of funny describing it out loud because when you think about innovation, you think about open spaces, windows, people coming together, not turning off all connectivity to the outside world and sitting in a closed, dark space. And so when you think about national security, oftentimes I believe that people have um, unintentionally conflated secrecy with national security. And there's a assumption that you must have secrecy. It comes hand in hand with national security. And I'd like to challenge that notion. Sometimes secrecy does, of course, play a role. If we need to have an edge on our adversary, sometimes that means that our adversary can't know exactly where we are. They can't know the vulnerabilities of our system or exactly the capabilities of our system. But if we go too far with secrecy, and prevent potential innovators from knowing about problems or what the challenges are. They really can't bring to bear their ideas in solving it. So I think that there is a balance to be had where we can enable innovators to come into the ecosystem, help us solve our unsolved problems and actually enhance national security, even if it means some reduction in secrecy. So we had a discussion with um, with Vint Cerf, who was co-father of the Internet, and he was describing the early days of development of, of that technology, which, you know, little little event of the last century. Um, and, and that's kind of the thing he was saying is that it was DARPA funded work, but um, they knew that it had his from his perspective, they knew that it had to work with their allies whoever our allies might be 25 years from now, and not knowing who that might be, they said, well, let's bring everybody in from the get-go. 
Um, and and I think it's an interesting perspective on the real value of um, you know tapping into expertise that's available around the globe. Yes, absolutely. And one of the aspects about that, you know, ensuring interoperability, that's a core tenant of systems engineering, which is an important background of mine. And I think that when we think about innovation, a lot of innovation might happen in the future. Sometimes we invest so much on systems today that once they are deployed, they're deployed for decades. And so really there's very little innovation today that's completely, you know, a blank slate. It has to be interoperable with legacy systems. And so if we can find ways to have common interfaces, platforms that enable future interoperability, then whatever system you build today, whatever its functionality is today is only the starting point and we can keep building upon that in the future. And I think that's a great analogy also for how we can do innovation in national security environments. It's another way to handle that secrecy issue that Alexa raised that all of the capabilities of the system don't need to be known by one party, but certain capabilities can be handled by certain components and subsystems, and they can come together to really serve a, a larger purpose. What do you say to critics who say, uh, we can understand open innovation in the private sector like open source software? You know, everybody contributes, everybody understands there's interoperability, but in a national security perspective, why would you want our adversaries to understand the um, the platforms that from which we are operating from doesn't that give them an advantage yeah great question i think it what it comes down to is we no longer have the luxury of just relegating our innovation to very small groups of people like we talked about earlier we need to increase our pace of innovation to keep up and to outpace our adversaries. And we're simply not able to do that today. It's not possible. When you think about innovation and how it is done sometimes in the areas of most importance to national security, it's done in a very seemingly backwards way. You have a very small group of people that have very high security clearance, that have a need to know, largely because they know people who are involved in those programs, government program managers who have to authorize that need to know. And as a result of that, you've put so many restrictions. Mm -hmm. Not only do you have to be known by the person who's working on the program, you have to have that clearance, you have to have that access. And it results in a smaller and smaller group of people that can contribute to solving a problem. And what we know about innovation is that oftentimes, bringing to bear people that have a completely different background is actually what you need. If you want to solve a problem in medicine, we found that if you bring in someone from agriculture or construction, they might have a unique perspective. But that means they're not really the first of mind when you think of how do I justify on this need to know form why this person in particular should know about this program and the problem that we're trying to solve. And so as you can see, there's a tension here in following the way things, you know, status quo, how things have been in terms of how we go about solving secret problems to can we make a change here and actually leapfrog our innovation process? And yes, I think it, it does scare people and it does raise questions when you think about decreasing 
secrecy, but if you think of it from a longer term vision and the bigger picture, that what is actually right for national security without just the assumption that secrecy is needed, you'll find that sometimes solving this problem is what you need to do. And that might involve a different way of thinking. So do you have in mind an example of something that either could have been done differently or should be done differently now in order to tap into that broader base of expertise? Sure. So an example that I talk through in the book in more detail is uh, with Roche. Roche is coming, you know, from the commercial world, of course, but in an industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, that is also very much cloaked in secrecy. We have intellectual property issues. We have uh, a lot of competitiveness. And there are lots of reasons why Roche likes to be cloaked in secrecy. Well, they took a leap and decided to dip their toe in open innovation. And they used a platform called Inicentive, where they decided to post publicly to the world a problem that they had been wrestling with. So it's exactly what we're talking about here, which means revealing to your competitors, your adversaries, that you have a problem that you're not able to solve. Well, let me tell you what happened in this case. Roche had been working on this problem for years, and they had come up with many possible approaches but had never solved the problem. In the short 60-day window that this uh, open problem was posted on Inicentive, they got not only the correct answer that ultimately solved their problem, they got every potential approach that they had tried before. So that means that it's possible in a very much reduced time frame, 60 days, that the years and years of R&D investment and time to get those same results. And so the other aspect is, again, coming back to cost efficiency, Roche only had to pay for the idea that was correct, the one that cracked the nut. All of the other ideas that were submitted, they didn't have to pay for that R&D work. It was whoever around the world was working on it, thought it would be fun to work on this problem, submit the ideas, and Roche only had to pay for the winning one. And so when you think holistically, this is what should be done differently, as illustrated in this example, because you can accelerate your innovation, and you can reduce the cost um, of doing that innovation. So if you can be thoughtful about the trade-off of revealing a little bit about the problem, you can actually get it solved and really leapfrog your innovation. You talk uh, in the book about practical barriers to innovation um, and how the government's pursuit of your cost effectiveness and efficiency really ends up costing us in the long run, as you just illustrated. Um, the, so what are some examples of these legal administrative barriers or frameworks that really uh, limit our ability to successfully manage um, security innovation, not just from research, but ultimately to you know, development and deployment? Great question. Yes, I think that these legal and re regulatory frameworks oftentimes shape the incentive structures around this, and it can be a, a real challenge if not handled correctly. One, one example 
is a company called Tenebrex, which I highlight in the book, who is the developer of an anti-reflective coating that goes on a sniper rifle. And this uh, coating is the best coating out there. Uh, the army evaluated it. They determined it was the best. It was the most effective to keep the snipers safe and to keep their uh, soldiers from being detected because of its anti-reflective nature. And Tenebrex, being a small business, invested their own personal capital, their own R&D to develop that coating. They had the patents on it and they were selling it to the, to the army. Well, the army decided to require that anti-reflective coating because it was the best, but actually awarded the contract to a competitor, not to Tenebrex. Yeah, and so you it's incentive. <laughs> exactly. And so you might wonder, well, how is that possible if Tenebrex had the patent? Shouldn't that not be the case? That's the point of a patent. Well, speaking of these legal and regulatory infrastructures, there is a law called authorization and consent that was put into place over a century ago. Okay. And that law has unintended consequences that we are seeing today. And what it boils down to is that the government can choose a contractor to develop technology and that contractor can intentionally infringe another patent without repercussions with immunity. And this is the, the real challenge. It really left Tenebrex um, having a much reduced set of actions that it could pursue to be compensated for their innovation and really disincentivized them from making such inventions, which is a, a real problem because if you have innovators who are able to meaningfully contribute and in this case develop you know, the best anti-reflective coding, you want those innovators to stay in the game and to be innovating for national security. But because of this, this law, authorization and consent, and the impact it had here, it actually uh, did the opposite. Yeah, and it also consolidates the, the power and economic power into the hands of very few suppliers on which the government is then dependent. Um, curiously, how are we doing? I mean, the assumption is we were doing great, you know, in the 20th century, U.S. was funding all these initiatives. Lots of industries were kickstarted. Some of these initiatives came in as developments in the commercial sector. Um, but are we still ahead of our adversaries? And if not, who's actually doing a good job? What government uh, is doing a good job? That's a great question. I think that there are certainly areas where the U.S. is continuing its legacy of being far and away ahead of its competitors. I think that there are certainly always, there's always room to improve. And the U.S. is not the only one who can do innovation. And we're seeing that more and more. It's not always a bad thing. Obviously, it's a good thing uh, to have a global improvement in innovation and technology. It can improve everyone's lives. So it's not always a bad thing. But as with regard to the specific connection between technological superiority and national security, with regard to what the U.S. values and what the U.S.'s interests are to protect those, we do need to maintain national security and technological superiority. So I would say that just like we talked about 
in this example of in the semiconductor area, I think that we have uh, others around the world like China that have set policy around this, that have a plan for being the world's leader in the semiconductor industry. And what that could mean for the U.S. is very significant. And so we can see that that China is investing in this and the U.S. is working on that, too. But we move at the pace that Congress moves, which cannot be necessarily as fast as we need it to be. We also always face uh, budget issues and questions. And so if we can implement, again, strategies that help us yield the innovation we need without requiring solely investment in dollars, um, then we need to put those strategies in action now. We can't just assume because we're the U.S. that we will win. Um, it needs to be something that we have to fight for and continue to work for. Um, I'll, I'll just add one other concept, which is that the U.S. government is not the only place where innovation can occur. We obviously, when we think about some of the best and brightest innovators in America, they don't always choose to go to the government. They choose to go to some of the top tech companies or startups. And what that means is that if we continue to have a closed innovation system where only select individuals participate in innovation, then we won't be able to tap the best and brightest. At the time of Apollo, we had the top mathematicians and scientists choose to go work for NASA. And that was excellent. It was great. We were able to attract the talent needed to work on the problems we needed them to. Uh, we no longer have that drive. It's not clear if we'll ever have a drive quite at the level that we did at the time of Apollo. So we need to think about how to attract that talent to invest in the future of our national security. And that all comes down to incentivizing innovation in the long run and not necessarily requiring people to work full time for the government, but other avenues for them to participate. The question I have, I think, sort of touches on what you were just describing and then takes it a little further because the, the argument is that investment in innovation uh, can further national security goals. But um, that's assuming that it's the government investing in, in, in and reaping the benefits from innovation. And we live in an era where there are, there are some very large tech companies with, you know, that are valued at greater amounts than the GDP of non-trivial countries. Um, is there a threat from some of the development and innovation being done at these companies, or, or at least does that undermine sort of the development of, of improved um, national defense? That is a great question. I think that we see this play out in many areas. For example, when we talk about uh, public forums, um, Twitter and Facebook are, of course, not uh, public forums, at least at this time, they're not designated that way. And that means that the rules of the game are defined by a private company. So the same is the case in R&D and innovation. If the government is leading the charge and controlling where the investment is made and which problems are being solved, there are certain policies, or at least there's a process, a public process around how those decisions are made. If it is up to a private company, then the private company gets to set the rules of the game. You talked about a couple of things that were 
already administrative and legal barriers, you know, the uh, um, authorization and consent. Uh, and you also talked about incentives. So if, if it were up to you and to really jumpstart this new model, the open innovation model, what are some changes that you would make? I mean, what are some incentives that you would provide? You mentioned, you know, you wouldn't require people to work for the federal government full time. Um, but are there others from a legal perspective, from an administrative perspective, incentives that you, you think are really, really needed to be implemented? Yes, absolutely. I think for one, we need to look at expanding the pie. It's not always a zero-sum game. Like in the case of Tenebrex, it didn't need to be just Tenebrex or a competitor. There could have been other ways to incentivize Tenebrex to continue to innovate, such as helping Tenebrex with branding, you know, listing on um, publicly that Tenebrex is the one who developed this, which might encourage or help Tenebrex gain future government contracts. So they still got some value out of their innovation, even if it wasn't the dollars associated with a particular contract. There are other ways um, that the government can, can do this as well, such as in you know, setting up relationships between different companies. You know, one of the issues that you highlighted astutely was that we have centralized a lot of the activity among a very small number of companies. There are ways to really encourage other companies to participate in this process by not requiring smaller companies in many cases to work with that with that small group of companies, which is how things are done today. On the other end of the spectrum, these are some, some things that can be done even at a program manager level. There are some things that I believe need to be done from a legal and regulatory framework at the very top. I think that Congress needs to revisit the authorization and consent legislation. It is very pervasive across all government contracts and is a it's something that is putting at risk um, innovators and innovation today. People who innovate are worried that the government will take their idea and give it, you know, give the reward to someone else. And so if we don't address that law at the highest level, it could be an issue. Same with secrecy. There are very few people that actually have the right legally to decide what is considered classified and what isn't. And so there is not, program managers, for example, don't have the choice right now to say, hey, this information does not need to be classified. If it were unclassified, we could enhance national security by bringing to bear other innovators to solve this. Right now, they don't have that luxury. Uh, very few people are involved and the definitions of, uh, of top secret and secret are so intertwined with national security that it's very difficult. So for example, the definitions are along the lines of the disclosure of this information would cause grave damage to national security. And so when you think about that, it's very difficult for um, a program manager or somebody really working to solve these problems to be able to make a judgment call that this does not need to be top secret and limited to only uh, select individuals. We should make a decision 
to decrease the level of classification, they don't have that choice. So at a higher level, these legal and regulatory changes need to be made to fully realize uh, the ideas we talked about today. Is there support for that? I think that there is a gaining uh, understanding that these changes need to be made. We have seen uh, maybe as a interesting uh, consequence of COVID that uh, there's actually been an advancement in this stage. So you might think COVID is sort of unrelated to the issues that we're talking about, but let me give you a specific example. The NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, is one of those three-letter agencies where everything needs to be classified. Almost everything they do, every program is classified and uh, compartmented. Well, as a result of COVID, workers had to work from home, work remotely, and that means you can't work in a skiff and you can't follow some of the classification levels. Well, a number of programs and materials used in programs were actually reduced in classification level. And I won't comment whether that was a good thing or bad thing, but that that happened and in large part to enable the continued work on these programs in spite of COVID protocols. Well, that has opened up an opportunity where the NGA does a lot of work, for example, in mapping, which is something that we've seen big tech and private industry also doing a ton of work in mapping. Well, now we have a situation where programs that used to be highly classified now have large aspects of them that are unclassified. There has, in fact, been an interest from the innovation teams at NGA to see if they can leverage this. Can we now include people in our innovation process that we weren't able to include before? Can we stand on the shoulders of this change and really embrace some big advantages in how we collaborate with others. So they've opened a window and let some fresh air in and they're liking the smell of the <laughs> outside. Absolutely. Well, that's been an, a very interesting perspective on everything from national security through innovation and how to make innovation happen reasonably. Um, before we wrap up, uh, anything that you, any particular points you would like to leave our listeners with? I would just like to say that I think this is a real passion area of mine because I can see that the problems that we're working on that are of the most importance to national security, you know, these are real challenges that solving them can save American lives, that can really improve the world. And it's never been more important important to address these problems. And as the world is changing, we need to know that the way that we go about innovating can't be the way that we did so in the 80s. It, it has to advance at the pace that the whole world is innovating. So not just the problems getting tougher and the technology becoming more complex, but the way that we go about innovating needs to change. And it, it really has changed around the world. It has changed in private industry. And I think it is starting to change in the government and, it, and we need to support that and fuel that, that change. Um, lest we'll face some really, really global challenges ahead. I think when we think about the ideals that we stand for, which are not just American, but our allies in the world, you know, civil liberties and where we want the world to go, we cannot 
influence that direction on the world stage unless we have both the hard strength and the soft strength. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. I got to say, I love the fact that you are a, a pilot and a flight instructor and MIT, really remarkable. It's lovely having you on. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this TechSequences podcast. We are Leslie Daigle and Alexa Rod. You can reach us by email, techsequences at techsequences.org. We'd love to hear from you to know what you thought about this episode or ideas for future episodes. TechSequences, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and subscribe through your favorite podcasting service.